There we go. Great to have you again here this morning. This is the part of God's Word we are looking at. So keep your Bibles open. Keep your phones open there so that you can be following along. Let me pray for us as we come to think about this together. Father, help us to take to heart your Word this morning, that we might live for the honour of your name. Amen. I've done marriage preparation with a bunch of different couples over the years, and one of the big tips that I I often give, are you ready for this? This is going to enrich, it's going to blow your relationship, your marriage, it's going to take it to new levels. Here's the tip, get some Ikea flat pack furniture (laughs) and do that together. Try building that furniture. Because you know what? The real test is not just when you go to you know, the store and you've got to pick it out and communicate together. The real test is when this comes out of the box, right? The instruction manual. And you know, how's this all going to go down? You know, somebody starts going, oh, where's that piece? Where's that screw? You said this. No, I said that. What have you done now? I'll just do it myself. And then Rachel and I have always had fantastic uh, you know, experiences with uh, doing IKEA. We really have. But I promise this might sound something familiar to you. How you handle the instructions can either make or break a relationship. That can be true. And I think this is particularly the case as well. A similar thing is happening in Malachi, uh, particularly between the temple priests and God concerning God's instruction, God's law, God's word. Uh, The question I want to ask today is this. Does God mind if his instruction is taught and obeyed? I mean, now, sure, God has given them his instruction. He's given them his law. They've had it for centuries. But look, really, does God mind? Does he really mind if his his, uh, instruction is taught and obeyed? Or does he not really care too much about that? It's a question, actually, I feel like that we can be asking ourselves still today. You know, oh... We're an Anglican church here, you know, surprise if you didn't know that. Uh, and in the, as, as a Sydney Anglican church, we, I think, come from a blessed and rich tradition of Bible teaching. And we praise God for that. Thank you, God, for that. But you know what? Times are changing. You know, shouldn't we just sort of accommodate our culture just a little bit more? You know, is there really one way to God? Do we need to sort of push so hard on that? Maybe you should be, we should be a little bit more inclusive. Isn't the Bible just a bit outdated and not really up to pace with the modern life? And you know, well, Australian culture as well, it, it's pretty chilled, isn't it? Pretty laid back. And I think one of the things that a lot of Australians like to think about God is, well, I want to have a God who's also pretty relaxed, pretty laid back. And certainly a God who's far more relaxed than lots of those sort of uptight Bible Christians seem to be. I want a God that's far more relaxed. I don't know if that's your kind of uh, preference as well. I mean, really, does God care what I get up to in the bedroom? I mean, hasn't God got bigger fish to fry than that sort of thing? Like there's global poverty and there's wars and there's injustices all over the place. Does God really care if I come to church or not or if I say this or do that? I mean, seriously, does he care? Does God really mind if his instruction is taught and obeyed? Well, we are continuing with the prophet Malachi in the Old Testament in this series. Malachi, he's writing about 400, 450 years before Jesus. And if you were a priest in Malachi's day, well, you might have good reason to think that God doesn't especially mind if his instruction is taught 
and obeyed. You see, Malachi, he was preaching to a disappointed generation. This was the generation, the people that hadn't long returned from exile in a foreign country. They'd come back to the land. And just like you might have gone to Ikea, you get your flat pack furniture, right? You're really excited about all the sorts of hopes and dreams of what this wonderful thing is going to come together as. Well, they too were coming back to their home country with all these hopes and dreams for what was going to happen. They were going to rebuild Jerusalem. They're going to rebuild the temple, rebuild their religious lives. Maybe, just maybe even enter into this new golden era that God had promised. And in the midst of all that hopefulness and optimism and this return, God's law, God's instruction, especially for the priests, took center stage. And this is a wonderful moment in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah as well, where Ezra the priest, he is one of those folks that comes back from this exile, comes back to the land. He's got the law under his arm, basically. He comes back to Jerusalem and he preaches the law to all the people. And there's this wonderful sense of renewed hopefulness for repentant hearts, that maybe now the law would bring the life and the peace that has been so promised by God. But the years have just passed by now, just a little bit more. The priests are now tired, tired of waiting for God to act, tired of leading this bunch of uh, people, maybe growing a bit despondent there. And as we saw last week, what the priests end up doing is they exchange the life-giving truth of God's instruction. They exchange that for an empty religion of easy acceptance. They just accepted whatever rotten sacrifice the people brought, lame and diseased and sick, not the best animals whatsoever. They didn't care what was brought to them. They were just going to go through the motions, the priests. But does God care? Does God care if his instruction is taught and obeyed? Yes, he does. Yes, he does. How do we know? Well, you can see there in your outline, there's the points that I'm going to be going through. The first point of which is that God minds enough that his instruction is taught and obeyed that he appointed priests in the first place. Look at Malachi chapter 2. Malachi chapter 2, looking at verse 4 to 7, because in that chunk there, verses 4 to 7, we get this, this picture, a picture of what the priesthood was meant to be like. Let me read this again from verse 4. Then you will know that I sent you this decree... So my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave these to him. It called for reverence, and he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and nothing wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and fairness and turned many from sin. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and the people should seek instruction from his mouth because he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. Now, the name uh, Levi popped up there a few times. And we've got to know, so Levi, right here, it's not talking about Levi himself. Uh, Levi, he was one of the 12 sons of Jacob back in Genesis. Uh, Really, Levi, he's a rotten so-and-so, if you go back and read the stories about him. So it's not talking about Levi personally, But by using his name, God is describing here the ideal priesthood. 
It's an ideal picture that is being painted. This is the priesthood that God wanted. You may notice as well, actually, that the, the, the descendants of Levi, though Levi was a bit of a rotten so-so, his descendants, his tribe, came to be appointed as the priests to the people to so fulfill this kind of role. You may have noticed as well there that the job of a priest is not just to offer sacrifices. There wasn't just one day a week kind of job, right? No, their job was also, and even especially so, one of teaching. Teaching God's instruction and modelling it to everyone else. And every now and then, one of their number over the years gave it a good go. Uh, There's some like Phineas, Zadok the priest, you might know, in, in David and Solomon's time. There's Ezra that we mentioned before. So this is the thing, yeah, that the role of the priest, as God wanted to be, was actually a wonderfully beautiful thing. It was a wonderfully beautiful provision to his people. The, the priests, they served as a mediator between God and people. They, they mediated God's instruction. They, they were the, the, the channel, in a sense, of seeing God's word and law played out. Just look there again in verse 7. We'll see how they mediated God's instruction. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, God's knowledge. And people should seek instruction from his mouth, because he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. You see there, the priest mediated God's instruction. But they also mediated, channel in a sense, uh, the life and the peace that came with obeying God's instruction. It was to be seen in the very life and peace of the priest themselves. So look at verse 6 now. True instruction was in his mouth, and nothing wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and fairness and turned many from sin. So I'm not sure what comes to mind when you have thought about uh, the law, God's law in the Old Testament. Uh, But please don't think about it in this way. It's not a list of sort of pointless do's and don'ts. Don't think about it like you're a sort of appliance or Ikea sort of instruction manual. Don't think about God's law, God's instructions in that kind of way. When you think about God's law, maybe, maybe bring this kind of image to mind. And these are just my words. This is just my attempt to capture it. There's a few different ideas going on here, but I hope it's helpful. Think of God's law as this. His life-giving, peace-filled ways for rightly living under his rule as his saved and chosen people in relationship with him to stand out from the nations, you know, and all to the glory of God. Like, that's a dramatically different picture to thinking about God's law as just a pointless list of do's and don'ts with whatever else you might think about it. But this, This is what the law was for. That's what God's law was for. And the priests were to play a beautiful part in this. So does God mind if his instruction was taught and obeyed? Yes. That's why he appointed the priests in the first place. So there's the first reason. The second reason is this. That God minds enough that his law and his instruction is taught and obeyed Well, he minds enough when he judges the priests for when they don't do it and they don't obey it. I mean, just look at this. Two Chronicles. This is another part of the Old Testament. Two Chronicles, chapter 15. And this, uh, we'll see what's going on, the state of affairs at this point in time, centuries earlier. 
Uh, For many years, Israel had been without the true God in that they they didn't worship him. Uh, They they, uh, were without a teaching priest. Notice the description there. And the consequence, without instruction. And it seems that this sort of same situation has come round again uh, in Malachi's day. So so come back with me to Malachi chapter 2, starting at verse 1, and we'll see the kind of judgment, the indictment that God gives. Verse 1, Therefore, this decree is for you priests. If you don't listen, and if you don't take it to heart, to honour my name, says Yahweh of hosts, I will send a curse among you, and I will curse your blessings. In fact, I have already begun to curse them, because you are not taking it to heart. Like God, he takes it seriously. So seriously that he would judge them. And you see that in verse 8. Let me read that. You, on the other hand, God says, you have turned away or turned from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have violated the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. So I, in turn, have made you despised and humiliated before all the people because you are not keeping my ways, but are showing partiality in your instruction. You know that line from Spider-Man, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. I think they totally stole it from somewhere else. But I think there's a similar thing going on here in Malachi. For them in Malachi, for the priests with great blessing, right? This blessing that they are, that they have in being this role that God has given them, a privileged role, wonderfully it is. But with great blessing comes great responsibility. But that great responsibility also brings the danger of great judgment. Uh, for them, uh, rather, we'll have a look at verse 3 and we'll see what God says to them. Verse 3. Uh, and I'm going to rebuke your descendants as well, the Lord says, right? There's going to be lasting consequences. You know, your, your priestly line, he says, one day it's going to end. And then things get really graphic. Did you notice this when we were reading through before? Um, and I'm calling this, it's rated M for Malachi. Okay, so see verse 3. And I will spread animal waste over your faces, <laughs> the waste from your festival sacrifices, and you will be taken away with it. Okay, how about we just make this the new sort of kid's memory verse, okay? We'll get Marty in here, he'll strum along some tunes about animal waste this, and they'll have the actions and that kind of stuff. Like, animal waste, this is a very polite translation for what's actually going on here. Like, I'm, this is my PG sort of translation, P for poo, G for guts. This is what's going on here. It's meant to be an absolutely disgusting picture of animal waste, of intestines, of blood, of feces. And by the way, if you'd love to join us for morning tea, come on out there. We've got a lovely selection of uh, treats and things like that. But this is a horrific image. Even more so when you consider the blessing that the priests were meant to be giving to the people. Okay, let's go back to Numbers chapter 6. Here is an example of one of the blessings that the people, that the priests are to be giving uh, to the people. They were to say things like this, the Lord bless you, people, and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. No, God says, 
I will not make my face shine upon you. You rubbed my face in your pathetic, diseased animals that you came and brought for sacrifice. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take the waste of those pathetic, diseased animals and I'm going to rub your face in it. And that's where you're going to end up, the same place that they have gone. You've dishonored me. Whoa. (laughs) But why does God care? Well, just look again at verse 8. What does he say to them? It's not just that they've failed to to do sacrifices the right way. Verse 8, you have caused many to stumble by your instruction. What a tragedy. From the great blessing and privilege and role that the priests had in bestowing the blessings of God to the people. What a tragedy. And you can think about how Jesus reserved his strongest words of rebuke for the religious leaders and teachers of his day when they were twisting God's law in a way that would hurt his people. The Apostle Peter, in in his second letter, chapter 2 of that one, he even goes as far as saying that there's kind of like a special place in judgment for false teachers who twist God's word and hurt, hurt his people in that way. So make no mistake... God really does mind whether his instruction, his true instruction, is taught and obeyed because he judges those who don't do it. But there's still more going on in this passage because if we think that this, what we're reading here is just a rebuke for the priests and they can just have a bit of a slap on the wrist and just so that next time they can try harder, we've actually missed what God is really trying to say here. The priest's failure has actually broken the whole covenant. This covenant, right, it it defines the relationship between God and his people. And it's kind of like when you get that Ikea flat pack. I'm going to go back there again, okay? You're building it, you're assembling it, and lo and behold, there's pieces missing. There always is, seems to be. But imagine there's that crucial, integral piece where everything connects to it, and it's missing or it's broken, and the whole thing just can't stick together. Well, that's kind of what the priests were to the covenant. They were this integral component, and their failure means the whole thing falls apart. Right? It's not God's failure. It's not the covenant's failure. It's, it's the people's failure. In this case, it's the priest's failure. You see, they were meant to mediate the blessings of God to the people, but instead, what were they mediating now? Curses because of their failure to listen and obey then we might still might go, well, maybe the next generation of priests, this one maybe not so good, maybe the next one, they'll do better. No, this was the generation of priests that came out of the, out of the exile with all sorts of optimism. They came and they were meant to be the answer. It's not looking that way at all. But God, he always has a plan. And God always knew that what, what his people needed was a priest, a messenger, who would bring God's law with such transforming power that he would come and write the law of God on people's hearts. Like we heard that from Jeremiah 31, that second Bible reading earlier. Now, can that really happen? Just jump with me to Malachi chapter 3. Just turn over the page. 
Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. We're going to come to this in a few weeks' time, so I'm not going to steal too much thunder here, but just this one verse, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, and listen to this promise from God. See, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. Then the Lord you seek will suddenly come to this temple, the messenger of the covenant you desire. See, he's coming, says the Lord of hosts. How much does God mind if his instruction is taught and obeyed? Here's the third point. God minds so much that he would send his only son to do the job. And as we look again, just go back to Malachi chapter 2, that passage from before. As we look again over that ideal picture of the priest, we start to see that that ideal picture of a priest is actually a Jesus picture, isn't it? Again, I'll read verse 6 from chapter 2. True instruction was in his mouth, and nothing wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and fairness and turned many from sin. Like, we've got to know, right, that Jesus, when Jesus steps on the scene, Jesus isn't the moment when God decides, okay, okay, look, I've had enough of this law business. That was plan A. Time to get to plan B with Jesus. Now it's time for me, God, to become more relaxed about the whole thing. No, that's not what's going on here. This Jesus moment is when God decides to show us exactly what his law, his instruction was on about with absolute clarity. God and Jesus don't abandon and reject the law. Jesus fulfills it. Jesus, he's the one who perfectly teaches God's instruction. Jesus is the one who perfectly lives out God's instruction. He he honours and obeys his Father with every breath. And it's the sacrificial death of Jesus that perfectly satisfies the requirements of the law. The law of God, his holy law, required and demanded punishment for sin. That's justice for that disobedience. And yet only Jesus, the perfect priest, and the perfect sacrifice can take that for us. Let me just read part of Hebrews, this letter to the, of Hebrews from the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 7. Now, many have become Levitical priests. And why do you need many? Well, they got the habit of dying, don't they? Since they are prevented by death from remaining in office. But because he, Jesus, remains forever, risen from the dead forever to reign, he holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is always able to save those who come to God through him, since he always lives to intercede for them. And we'll keep going the next slide there. For this is the kind of high priest we need, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day as high priests do, first for their own sins and then for those of the people. He, Jesus, he did this once for all when he offered himself. Jesus, perfect sacrifice. Jesus, the perfect priest. You see, Arnold's Biscuits, I think, are onto something here. There is no substitute for quality. Isn't that true when it comes to this as well? There is no substitute for Jesus. I'm sure that's what Arnott's had in mind. You know, they're theologically astute when they came up with that slogan uh, many years ago. But there is no substitute for Jesus. 
There is no other way to God. There is no other path up this mountain. There is no other thing that we can do, nothing that we can lump on the table that we can say, hey, God, is this acceptable to you for you to receive me? And if we try, if we try to kid ourselves in that way, we're no better than the priests who are going to get their faces rubbed in it. But the good news is Christ has done it once for all when he's offered himself on that cross. How can we settle for anything less than Jesus? And so you know what that means right there? That if there is no substitute for Jesus, then there is also no substitute for the glorious message about Jesus. And so this is my final point here, and you can see that in your outline as well. Does God mind if his instruction is taught and obeyed? Yes, he minds enough that he still entrusts people with teaching and guarding the truth of Jesus. Now, of course, we don't need priests today. We don't need the Old Testament sacrifices. Jesus, he is the, the ultimate and the final sacrifice. He is the final and the ultimate high priest, as we read before. Uh, he's fulfilled all that. I am not a priest. Mike, Marty, we are not priests in that way. Nevertheless, this challenge here in Malachi, these words, and indeed the rest of the New Testament as well, challenge us still with the importance of teaching God's instruction and living it out. Listen to these words here from, that the Apostle Paul tells Timothy, preparing him for his ministry. Timothy, hold on to the pattern of sound teaching that you have heard from me in the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who lives in us, that good thing entrusted to you. It's a precious, precious thing, the message of truth, the instruction of God. It's a precious thing to have that entrusted to you, this precious held into your hands. That's what God's word is like. But, you know, the way that you were to guard Guard God's message is not to take this precious thing and then to put it in a box and close it up and lock the lock and key and then put it into a shoebox and into the bottom of the cupboard. You know, that's not what you do to guard God's word. What are you to do? You see God's word taught. You see God's word obeyed. You unleash God's word. That's how you rightly handle God's word. You will unleash it. You teach it and you obey it. And, and this is... This is one of my, this is my primary job, to, to instruct, to teach God's word and to obey it myself and to see it obeyed. And so please pray for me. That is a big job. I really do need your prayers. But can I say it's also your job too. Anytime that you handle God's word, this is your job. Whether from the pulpit or from kids' church, if you serve in there, uh, the school classroom that you may have the opportunity in, or even just the dinner table at home as you gather the family and you open up the Bible. You are handling God's word. Guard the truth. Instruct it. Hold on to it. Teach it. And know that if you're stepping into kids' church, as you step in across in through those doors, and, and I know a bunch of you are actually joining the kids' church team for the first time from next week as we start our new services, 
fantastic. That's wonderfully exciting. But know that if you're one of our kids' church leaders, if you're a youth leader, if you're one of our hope group leaders, scripture teachers, something else, whatever it might be, know this. Your role is not to fill a roster. Your role is to rightly teach God's word and to obey it. Your role is to model it to those six-year-olds and those 16-year-olds and to your Wednesday night hope group. Your role is to show what it is to, to live for Jesus. That's a high calling, isn't it? It's a, it's a privilege. It's a blessing. It's a wonderful thing. But friends, let's pray hard for our church. Let's pray hard for those who serve and lead and teach to all ages here. Because this is a church, and I hope this has been your experience too, this is a church where we won't hold back from teaching the truth of God's word. Now, some things are going to be changing around here. Yes, we've got new congregation times from next week. But that, the teaching of God's word, it's center place about the, the lordship of Jesus Christ. That is not going to change. In fact, I've heard from many of you over the years that the thing that has brought you to Hope Church originally and the thing that you love about hope is the faithful teaching of the Bible. And that the way it's come and brought to bear on your, your lives. So again, please pray that never changes. And always make sure yourself that you, your family, that you are sitting under God's word. Sitting under leadership here that is Christ-like. That's why we always, we keep saying time and time again, keep your Bibles open. If you don't have a Bible, put your hand up. We'd love to get one into you. By the way, have you got a Bible? No, put your hand up. Let's get one into you. Five minutes later, have you got it? let's put a Bible into your hand. So you can be reading along. You can be seeing for yourself, not just taking my word for it. You can be seeing from God's word, what is God saying? You can say, is, is, is this really what, is what Cam is saying faithful and true? I hope it is. And if Michael, Marty, or myself ever teaches something that is contrary to the scriptures, run out of here. You know, get as far away as possible. If we teach what is contrary to the scriptures, this is not the place for you to be. But I am sure and I hope and pray that it is. Here at Hope, God's word is central. And we want to see the hope of Jesus in every home. And can I put it this way, that we don't just want to see converts. We want to see disciples. Disciples made of every age. Disciples who are taught the scriptures, who, are, who come to obey their king. People who long to live for the honour and glory of Christ. That's what we want to be on about. Church, can we pray that that would happen? Let's keep doing that. I've been incredibly humbled going through this passage considering uh, the weight of being a faithful pastor and teacher and trusted with God's word and trusted with God's people. Uh, but you know what? I still fail. That may not be a surprise to you. But I do. Our leaders, our teachers, we will fall short. But praise God for his perfect priest. Praise God for his, the provision of his perfect uh, sacrificed, the perfect leader, the perfect teacher. Praise God for his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, let's pray now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your wonderful blessings 
in the Lord Jesus Christ. You did not abandon your people, but you have remained faithful and true. And in your wise timing, have sent your one and only son into this world to be that perfect priest, to be that perfect sacrifice. Father, we pray for our church. May we be a church that continues to to hold fast to the scriptures. We pray for those at all sorts of different places uh, and different ways who lead and teach. Please use us to see the glorious name of Jesus, our Lord and Saviour, proclaimed here and beyond. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.